This is Ann Arbor Stories. I'm Rich Reddy. The first contestant to advance was Leslie Hoft, age 11, from Lincoln Consolidated School. The next day, Richard Meldrum, age 12, beat 33 other boys and girls at Platt School to earn his berth in the tournament. That same week, 146 boys and girls at St. Thomas Elementary and High School duked it out before Angelo Rocco and Ernest Tomzak emerged the winners. That spring in 1936, seven years into the Great Depression, the entire city of Ann Arbor, age 14 and under, lost its marbles over the biggest sporting event the city had ever known. Hundreds of kids battling for 26 coveted spots in a tournament that could determine their future. It was the 1936 Ann Arbor Daily News Marbles Tournament, pitting the best shooters in the best schools in the city against each other for an all-expenses-paid trip to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, to compete in the Western Finals. The champion of the West would punch his or her ticket to the National Marbles Tournament on the Jersey Shore, and a chance at Marbles Immortality. Marbles was a big deal in 1936. The national tournament was already 15 years old. Champions as young as 11 and from as far away as Baltimore to Louisville, taking home the title of Marbles King of America. The game was cheap, simple to play, and a perfect distraction for kids during the Great Depression. Marbles didn't cost much, a few cents apiece, except shooters, which were made of denser glass or material like flint or agate. Those could run a kid 40 cents to a dollar. They were prized like a cowboy six-shooter. The kids got really superstitious about their favorite shooters. You could play almost anywhere. Draw a circle in the dirt 10 feet in diameter. Have each player rack 13 large marbles in the shape of an X at the center. Players took turns crouching outside the circle, propelling larger, denser marbles called shooters with their thumb, trying to knock their opponent's marbles out of the circle. If you knocked another kid's marble out of the circle and your shooter remained inside, you get to go again. Players took turns until one shooter's marbles were all knocked out. Newspapers across America sponsored tournaments to send representatives to regionals in their respective areas, hoping to back the next national champion. The Ann Arbor Daily News jumped aboard in 1936, sponsoring a citywide contest to pick the best shooter in the city. The news selected historic Yost Fieldhouse, which was just 13 years old, as the venue for the big tournament, held on the afternoon of May 25, 1936. Ann Arbor High School coach and athletic director Don A. Drake was appointed the official referee, promising to keep play fast, fair, and interesting. During the month of May, schools throughout the city held spirited play-in tournaments. Local legends pitted against scrappy underdogs. Each day, a few more spots were claimed in this high-stakes schoolyard session. Everything published in the Ann Arbor Daily News for kids and grown-ups to keep track of. Like coverage of 14-year-old Wayne Wagoner, who, quote, went to town in the Dexter Regional Tournament, beating both the rural and the village boys. Fellow 14-year-old Frank Bostick wiped the floor with the competition in the Jones Junior High School Tournament, while Carlton Kuhn of Mack Junior High made a name for himself in advancing. On the morning of the tournament, the field of 26 assembled and paired off to play. Six rings were drawn on the dirt at Yost, and a crew under the direction of Lorenzo D. Thomas prepared a perfect playing surface. William Smith of Whitmore Lake fell hard. Frank St. Mary of Ba crapped the bed. 
The pressure built as afternoon turned to night, and the field dwindled from 26 to 16 to 8 to 4. Jack Davies of Tappan emerged the favorite, mowing down opponents with ease in the early goings. On the other side of the bracket, Herman Kersey of Woodruff School in Ypsilanti annihilated his first two opponents in just two turns, barely breaking a sweat before the semis. A Davies-Kersey showdown was imminent, along with that all-expenses-paid trip to Lake Geneva. It would have played to script, except for two scrappy underdogs, 14-year-old Clinton 8th grader Robert Atten and 13-year-old Jones Elementary 6th grader Marcellus Scott. Of the 22 kids pictured in the photo taken at the end of the Ann Arbor Daily News Marbles Tournament, 19 white faces stare at the camera, alongside three black ones. Sixth grader Marcellus Scott was one of those three African-American kids among the 22, which is significant for one reason. No African-American kid had ever won the National Marbles Tournament. You probably get where their story is going. Pitted against the Titan Davies, Scott beat him to advance to the final. There he defeated Atten, who barely snuck past the giant Kersey. Marcellus Scott of 616 High Street, because of course newspapers published the address of 6th graders in the 1930s, was on his way to Lake Geneva. Referee Donald A. Drake pinned a gold medal to Scott's chest, posed behind him in the photo of 22 kids, left hand resting proudly on his shoulder. Scott and his unnamed chaperones took a train to Grand Rapids where they joined three other Michigan State champions. Then they took an automobile to Muskegon to pick up a fourth member, then took an all-night boat across Lake Michigan to Milwaukee. When they arrived, they climbed into a car for one final automobile trip to Lake Geneva, where the team entered the Marble Stadium to get in some practice. Things got off to a bad start right away for Scott. Among the spectators in the crowd was a Dr. Samuel Schneider of St. Louis, an apparently renowned Midwestern marble champion in his day. Out of deference, shyness, or maybe just fear, Scott permitted the good Dr. Schneider to use his prized shooter to show the kids how good old-timers were. It turned out Dr. Schneider was still pretty good. So good that he wiped the dirt with the Michigan boys, and not before shooting so hard that he split two of Scott's best shooters in half. The doctor dropped a dime in the young boy's palm and returned to the stands with the damage done. Scott improbably lost a third shooter moments later when his marble plunked out of the ring and into the crowd, where it was mashed into the dirt by fans circling the action. Scott looked long and diligently but couldn't recover it. On Monday, the first day of the tournament commenced. The boys from Michigan were pitted against one another in a round-robin draw until one emerged victorious to face the rest of the field in the finals. Marcellus Scott drew Dean Miller of Muskegon in opening play. Wearing a brand new sweater with Ann Arbor on the chest and his nickname Eldine stitched on the back, Scott cocked his thumb, his fourth best shooter aimed, and fired. Scott was out of the competition on day two. He had to settle for having the time of his life that week in Lake Geneva. He ate in the giant hotel dining room, romped in the lobby with the other boys, enjoyed swimming, pony rides, bicycle trips, and bonfires. It was the best week of his young life. The little marble gladiators drove back to Milwaukee, took a boat to Muskegon, a car ride to Grand Rapids, and Scott boarded a train back to Ann Arbor. None of the Michigan boys earning that big trip to the finals. Leonard Bobby Tyner 
made that trip to the Jersey Shore for the national finals that 4th of July weekend, 1936. The 13-year-old orphan from the south side of Chicago beat 8,500 other boys and girls in a citywide tournament sponsored by the Chicago Parks District just to make it to the Western Finals. There he beat the field, including the best marbles talent Michigan had to offer, then boarded a plane at Midway Airport and flew to Ocean City. When Tyner arrived, the champion of the West, representatives from the Southern Marbles Coalition discovered, to their amazement, that this northern boy was black. White supremacy must be maintained at all costs, said they, so they fixed the draw so the previous year's champion, the legendary Henry Alton of Throop, Pennsylvania, would face the upstart kid from Chicago, rather than their own boy from Birmingham. It was their hope that the heavily favored Alton would demolish Tyner, saving the Southern champion from the embarrassment of having to play against a Negro. Editors from the Scranton Times caught wind of the plot. They sponsored two of the four finalists in New Jersey that summer, including Alton, who won a version of their own tournament back in Pennsylvania. The Times editors called the Southern machinations unsportsmanlike and un-American. Rather than permit the plot to stand, they withdrew both of their champions from the tourney. With just two contestants remaining in the final, this left the sponsors of the boy from Birmingham just two options, forfeit or play the black kid from Chicago. They allowed the match to proceed, and boy their faces were red when their white hope lost. 13-year-old Leonard Tyner, the first African-American national marbles champion, won five games to two. The boy from Birmingham refused to pose with him in the championship photo, so Henry Alton gladly filled in. The next day, Leonard Tyner returned to Chicago and stepped off the plane at Midway Airport, the new Marbles King of America. Ann Arbor Stories is presented by Rumble Pack Media in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This episode was written, researched, and read by me, Rich Reddy, with recording and sound production by Brian Peters. Thanks to the Ann Arbor District Library and their archive staff, who continue to help us locate and research these stories. Please follow us on Twitter at Ann Arbor Stories or drop us a line at Stories at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and please, if you have ideas for a following episode that you'd like us to do, don't be shy. Let us know. Thanks again for listening.